and managing editor and host of Talk That Talk, award-winning journalist Terrell Chatterbox Emerson. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Oh, my levels are crazy. <laughs> All right. Now I think we're back. Now I think we're back. Welcome to it. Welcome to it, guys. It is 3 o'clock on a Monday afternoon. You guys see that we're that we're switching it up a little bit since basketball season started, really. That's kind of been the switch so far in terms of us switching it up. We were able to juggle the Raiders, but, but now with basketball, with uh, Lady Rebels, and now the Raiders – we're switching it up, so now that's why you're seeing some of these Monday shows. But welcome to it, guys. It is time for Talk That Talk. I am your host, Terrell Chatterbox Emerson, in studio with my guy, Matt Raftery. What's going on, Matt? Another day, another week, Chatterbox. Living a dream, man, living a dream. When I say that, I truthfully mean that I am living a dream. Uh, the weird thing is, I think I even threw my parents off with this Monday show. Uh, we don't have any tip-ins from my parents today. I will say this, the the bad part about not doing the show yesterday is that I couldn't do it live in the moment. Happy birthday to my father. Happy birthday, Dad. I appreciate you, my guy. Um, I, if you guys follow me on social media, um, I, I said happy birthday. I said it's pack leader day or something like that. And and like I tell you, uh, you all the time, Dad, and like I tell everybody who will listen, I, I I mean exactly what I say. That's the pack leader. That's that's the one when he move, everybody move with him. So, uh, happy birthday to you. Uh, we appreciate you as always. And uh, let's talk some sports. Yeah, let's break it down. Let's talk some sports. Let's do it. Unfortunately, we're we're starting with some with some unfortunate news with some sad news. Um, we have a, another uh, death to report in. It's it, these these are never easy. These are never, um, as I said before, these are never easy to to get through. This one is gonna follow that that same trend. Uh, former wide receiver Demarius Thomas was found dead on December 9th in his home in Roswell, Georgia, at the age of thirty three years old. Um. Do I? Nah, I guess I didn't want to jump right into this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, no, whenever something like that happens, there were no real uh, reports were everywhere. There were no real solidified stories at the time. Uh, and almost immediately after a couple of those reports went out, uh, I believe ESPN. Of course, it, it's going to update as it as it happens and. Uh, the family reached out, and I'm not sure exactly who they told, but they said that he had suffered from seizures and that they uh, believed it to be a medical issue. Now, as I said before, these, these multiple reports are, are swirling, and, and as I said before, I don't know, especially doing this job, it's uh, you know that you have to be delicate with situations. And... Obviously, everybody wasn't as delicate with situations. We don't know what's true. We don't know what's not at this present moment. Um, maybe Matt can provide some clarity if he knows uh, a little more than I do. However, um, one report that I saw was that he was in the shower. And, again, we don't know if that's true or not. But if that is to be the case, 
considering what the family said about the seizures, it, you, 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 could, you could see it happening. You could see a possibility it was found um, in his home. And I want to make sure that I, I did this before, and I'm sorry, guys. Shout out to Salim, uh, our Florida man fact checker. I want to go ahead and do this really quick. Okay. Okay. So, um, Demarius Thomas would have turned 34 on Christmas Day. And obviously, before we talk about Demarius Thomas, the football player, this is uh, what I've been wanting to do whenever we obviously have to report on a, on a, on a passing, and that's uh, talk about the person. And I, I don't know how many – and you never want to compare in situations like this, but I don't know – the last time that we saw such an outpouring from and the interesting thing is you could say from different players and not even just teammates but just players around the league i'm talking about coaches executives like it's the levels that really caught my attention in terms of demarius thomas and and a lot of the things that were being said to lead had nothing to do with football. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always tough, these stories. Um, especially when you're a sports journalist, you don't like seeing these stories pop across the news feed. Um, I'd rather be breaking down, you know, Demarius Thomas's career. Um, right. You know, that's a much fun, conver- a much more enjoyable conversation than Demarius Thomas was found dead in his home that's uh you know it it's never hard it, or it's never easy i should say it's always hard uh depending on i mean just i mean you can go down the list it wasn't fun when kobe bryant died it wasn't fun with demarion thomas died i mean the list is just ongoing and they all have the common theme of it's always difficult to talk about these stories because you feel, you look at it, and especially when they're on the younger spectrum. Now, sure, I mean, athletes obviously die. They're humans. We all, it's just a matter of fact. Right. But a lot of them, you know, they, they'll die when they're older. Maybe they're in their 70s, 80s, something like that. So I guess it, it, when it's something like that, you go, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, they just died of old age. They had a good life. They had a good career, whatnot. But when you're talking about somebody that's dying at the age of 33, or in Kobe Bryant's case, he hadn't even gotten to 50. That's when you go, whoa, that is shocking. And that that was my exact reaction when I saw this break on Thursday night was, whoa. And, I mean, some may say I have a, a little bit of a a bitter taste from Demarius Thomas because he he did end my Pittsburgh he, he did end my Pittsburgh Steelers season one year, but oh, I have to talk to you about that. Um, but putting that aside, uh, Demarius Thomas, a a really fun receiver to watch in Denver, and really were uh, he played more in more places than Denver, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Houston was one of them. Uh, for some reason, the last stop is escaping me. Let me see if I can pull it up really quick while you actually talk. But I mean, just a, a fun player to watch. A, a fun Patriots and the Jets as well. I'm sorry about that. A, a fun, a fun guy. It's felt like in general, like I, I don't think, and maybe I could be wrong on this. I don't think I heard one bad thing about Demarius Thomas, even as the person. I didn't hear one negative thing. I didn't hear. I don't believe so either. 
I didn't hear, oh, you know, he, he had a fair share of problems or he was doing this. He was doing all I heard was, you know, very positive, uplifting things. And it, it makes me beg the question. So we still going to discard the CTE thing now. How far are you willing to let this go? Because we've started to see an uptick in these, you know, they happen to be NFL players that, you know, either have severe complications post their career. Um, they, you know, or they, they die prematurely or they, you know, that's a combination of the, the brain complications, you know, that lead to maybe a premature death. It, it makes you beg the question as far as how far is the NFL willing, really willing to let this go before they have to sit there and accept the fact that this is a real thing. And it's actually going on. And now it's taking lives of their former athletes probably more prematurely than you would anticipate. And it, the word that you used was shock. And the the um, night that it happened, you guys, most of you guys know, uh, especially the guy, uh, everybody in the group chat knows that I'm I'm up typically. I'm up all times, like all hours of the night. And the news obviously broke late and late on the West Coast, I should say. So let's say nine or ten ish, it's obviously twelve or one on the East Coast and and I was up pretty late that night. And um not, yeah, I was yeah, I was up late that night. And when I saw the news, it was about 11 when I saw the news. I get up, um, obviously trying to understand and wrap my head around what news I just got. I'm trying to figure out whatever information I can get. Um, the outpouring of love began then, obviously. And... It was an awkward feeling, and I'm I'm not even sure if that's the right word, only because while watching people find out on the West Coast, having it set in a little bit on the West Coast, having people start to memorialize Demarius Thomas on the West Coast was one thing, and then to watch the East Coast wake up to the news, that was another. Because my my Twitter feed at the time, you had to fill it twice. And as I said before, thoughts, prayers, and condolences to his fans, family, and friends. Um, Demarius Thomas, we can talk about the football player now a little bit. For his career, 724 career receptions. 9,763 yards. And this one, I'll be honest with you, and this is no disrespect to Demarius Thomas. This just proves how great he is. I had to go a couple of different places and verify this 63 uh, career touchdown mark. I sat with that number and said, all right. Now, obviously, we're talking about the football player, and we're not this is not to to bring up now, but when you look at these numbers, the first thing I thought about was what you just said. And this is this is the the part where you probably get mad at me. But 
postseason numbers, 759 yards, six touchdowns in the postseason. So nearly seven, 70 touchdowns for his career. <laughs> Matt, you know where I'm going. I know. I'm well aware. I'm going to allow you to take the, the heat off of yourself for a brief moment. Mm-hmm. We talk about Tim Tebow's moments in, arguably, some people would say moment. How much is Demarius Thomas responsible for Tim Tebow's NFL career? I think he's almost solely responsible for it. You look at Tim Tebow. Love you, Tim. He had a great year, but he didn't have a great he didn't have great years. He didn't have a great career, but he had a great year. He had a miracle run. A a lot of people would call it a Cinderella run with the Broncos. And by all accounts, I don't think anybody outside of the city of Denver was honestly expecting the Broncos to go beat the Steelers. The narrative was, this is the Steelers, this is Mike Tomlin, this is Ben Roethlisberger, They are still well in their prime. This is the spot they take care of business. And credit to Tim Tebow and the Broncos. They came out at home, and they won that game. But when you talk about Tim Tebow, that sole moment is all people remember about Tim Tebow when it comes to the football player. In in the NFL. I was about to say that, too, NFL career. Yeah, I mean, you could obviously go back to, you know, Florida with his college days, and people remember that, but – when you talk about what do you remember about Tim Tebow's NFL career? That that pass. That play is what most people are going to point to. And obviously we're we're being facetious. We're in here joking around in terms of 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 looking at these numbers and these numbers as I said before are just are absolutely just staggering. And the the interesting part was when I continue to look at these different uh statistics for Demarius Thomas Four-time Pro Bowler, two-time second-team All-Pro. And then I couldn't help but sit back and smile, obviously, because another accomplishment and perhaps one of the biggest accomplishments is winning Super Bowl 50 along with the Denver Broncos in 2015. One thing kind of jumped out at me when I was looking at uh, his his 10-year career or his 10-season, well, 10-year career, I'm reading through just some of the, the the cliff notes and I know we we bash a lot of we bash the league sometimes. I know that we bash teams for different reasons at times and and uh do you know how Demarius Thomas ended up in Houston? I don't off the top of my head. It was a trade, nonetheless. But I want to give credit and kudos to the Denver Bronco organization because other teams have done it as well, but we've also seen other teams fumble it away. And we understand that it's a business, and obviously if we understand it in, from a media aspect and most fans understand it, the players understand it. Have you ever looked at Demarius Thomas and not thought Denver? That's why I had to ask. I, I I thought he played with other teams, but I wasn't sure. I knew he played for Denver for sure. And the interesting part about that number for me, because it was four different teams, 
and the Jets actually wasn't that wasn't that long ago. Um, the thing that that kind of made me wonder, and I sat with it now, and I pondered it, and I was thinking, why is that? Why is that? And obviously, it's the numbers that he put up. It's it's his work that he put in by 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 far. It's the way that the Denver Broncos always held Demarius Thomas in their light. So to see the Denver Broncos do what they did, to see the way into Empower Field, and these, and by the way, and we can't have another conversation after this, uh, Empower uh, Field at Sports, what is it? Is it, is it, is it Empower Field, I think? Mm-hmm. There's an authority somewhere in, isn't in there. Sports Authority Field? Yeah. No, I think it's Empower, but there's at Mile High. Is it Sports Authority maybe after that? Anyway, hmm. this this is the reason why we're going to get to that conversation in a second. But to see them put the memorial outside for fans to be able to stop at, uh, first of all, from top to bottom, all the way from the left to right, that was a beautiful picture. If they told me right then that they were going to dig a hole in the ground and drop a Demarius Thomas capsule there, it wouldn't have shocked me. That's the way it looked. Mm-hmm. It looked as if they were going to do something we had never seen before or hadn't seen in a while. So that go that continues to speak about the light that they held him in. And then you get to the game. Lining up with 10 men on the field, Without a wide receiver, sp- spoke volumes. To see the 88s on the field, to see Justin Simmons get the interception, and pure raw emotion to go and put that ball on the 88 so Demarius Thomas can celebrate again. I want to say kudos to the Denver Broncos as an organization. I know that we we ripped the Broncos for various things. I'm I, I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, and I never really do this. The Denver Broncos might have just bought themselves some grace for me for for some time. So you wanted to hear the the craziest thing about that game? Oh, but I say being a Pittsburgh fan, I want you to break it down from the first to the fourth. Do it. Well, not, not not Pittsburgh, but okay. I'm talking about Denver against uh, – who are they playing, the Lions? Uh, they did play the Lions. Yeah. Do you know how long Denver's last touchdown drive of the game was? 88 yards. Pretty ironic. You can't make this stuff up, man. Um, <laughs> I know everybody doesn't really want to talk about it at this present moment. Uh, Rachel, was it Rachel Nichols? She was talking to Ramona Shelbourne. And uh, Ramona said that, obviously, Twitter, uh, and I do believe that that reporters would admit, some reporters admit, because some reporters refuse to, which is absolutely baffling to me, but Twitter will give you ammunition for your story, whether it's a written story, whether it's a, a stand-up, whether it's whatever it is, whether you're a TV show host, whatever it is, Twitter can help you write your story sometimes. And I know when Kobe passed away, a lot of people went back to uh, the old, old games and saw that he checked out of the game at 4.1 seconds, saw that if Kobe scored 60 points, the Lakers scored 101, therefore the rest of the team scored 41 points. Just the 41s around the building. 
uh, I believe it was Ramona Shelbourne or uh, Rachel Nichols who said that uh, they call those God wings. Like they which essentially just from context, those are things that in the moment you may not realize you'll go back and say those were not necessarily hints, but those were where he tried to kind of let you know. And it's those moments where, and this is where we're going to try to not get too, too philosophical, but I do believe in a higher power. And as I said before, I believe that the higher power allows these people who he takes at times to just go and touch certain things. And as you said before, the Denver Broncos final drive being 88 yards, I smiled. I said, Demarius, get your hands off the game. (laughs) Get your hands off the game. Like, I I see what you're doing here. But, um, again, Denver Broncos organization as a whole, top to bottom, I I applaud you guys. I commend you guys to the family of Demarius Thomas. Prayers to the friends of Demarius Thomas for uh, prayers and to the fans of Demarius Thomas prayers. Amazing football player. Everything that I've heard from foundations, from uh, teammates, from in- just people that he's interacted with, an, an amazing human being. Uh, just rest in peace to Demarius Thomas. Um, wow. Uh, if this was a podcast, I would have played Bill Withers right now. Lovely day. Um, let, let's have this random conversation really quick before we jump into some more football. A team that Demarius Thomas probably didn't like too much. But uh, I'm not sure if you like them right now. But anyway, um, I want to talk about – because I mentioned Kobe. Obviously, we both mentioned Kobe. We mentioned uh, <laughs> just basketball reporters. And then we mentioned Empower Field or Sports Authority Field, whatever it is now. And I told somebody this recently, and I'll be completely honest. I don't think she had a clue what I was talking about. Because you know sometimes if something – kind of crosses your mind you just blurt it out and I was watching I was watching some basketball game and I promise you it 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 sent me sent me for a loop because I'm looking at the game and I look at the court and I said they changed the name of the arena again and then it hit me Matt and sorry, Phoenix. The Phoenix Suns have changed the name of their they they they've been a footprint center, I think, for since the WMA season. So they're they're they've been doing that for a little bit. Now, the Phoenix Suns, they've switched that name about three times in the last year and a half. I went to the whatever other building I was looking at and I started doing numbers and I said, all of them about Two years ago, three years ago, why do I keep seeing, or a year and a half ago, why do I keep seeing three name changes? My only answer is COVID. And I know we have an investigation that we're working on slowly, but, and that one is obviously the one that we're working on because we're not going to tell you guys. But I'm going to throw this one out there because I think it's worth looking into. And it's not maybe it's not even an investigation, maybe it's just a news piece. I don't think I've ever seen these many name changes this quickly. You know what I saw? Hmm. It wasn't basketball. It was baseball. Hmm. 
And I'm looking at certain fields. It might have been Milwaukee. And when I seen that theirs was changed, I was like, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And it just, it just it just gave me gave me cause to pause. That's it. We we don't have to have a too big of a conversation now. The crypto.com arena is starting to make a little bit more sense to me now. I can see why Staples is like, fam, not re-upping. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys. Not, not going to do that again. I'm going to sell these printers and fax machines. Um, don't you use printers and fax machines? I do. All right. So somebody's, somebody's in need. All right. Uh, you want to get to the pick'em count first or you want to get to the Raiders first? Probably the pick'em count. That's probably a better Let's do, start off <laughs> Yeah, it's a better outing at least. Let's do this because – the, the, the pick them count, you took over for Tyler's team, and I told you guys before that <laughs> we, when we talked about this early in the year, we were laughing and we were saying that it was so many games that you're going to have your fair share of, of – how can I put it? You're going to have your fair share of weeks where you look bad and you're also going to look up at the end of the season and say, all right, I ain't do too bad. Because I think we pretty much – we all kind of know what we're doing to a certain extent. I say this to say – I'm not talking about week 14 because we're, we're obviously – we're waiting for a Monday night game tonight. We're actually taking you guys up to the Monday night game between the L.A. Rams and the Arizona Cardinals. This was a tough game to pick, by the way. I don't even know who I picked, yeah. but I refuse to look again. Whatever I picked, I'm just going to go with it. Just caution to the wind. So – I had a lot of fun looking at week 13 because we're in the same order as week 12 and week 13. So nobody moved. Three people had 10 and four weeks this week. Two are in this room. The other one is Daryl. Shout out to Daryl. Now, Duna, we love you, my guy. Duna's currently, and I don't like saying last, Duna's currently fifth. Right? Duna, I'm sure, is like, ah, oh, this isn't good. This doesn't look good. Duna is 23 games over 500. And he's in fifth place. I told everybody, we're going to look up at the end of this. And regardless of what order we finish, we're going to look and say, all right. So I finished third, fourth, fifth, and I'm 40 games over 500. How does this work? So, same order as I said before. So, it's myself, it's Salim, it's Matt, it's Daryl, and then it's Duna. Salim is three games behind me. You're a game behind Salim. Daryl's three games behind you. And Duna's three games behind him. We have, what, five more weeks left? Yeah. And the postseason, and then the postseason, we're actually going to get to scores and try to figure out some point spreads. So we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, and then next season, we're going to figure out how we can wager on this. Because I do have a plan. And the interesting part was we have an extra week, but I've done this pool at work $5 every week. And the funny thing is, if you got about five or six people in the group, $5 every week for 18 weeks, you look up when it comes to the Super Bowl and you're like, whoever the top two are, you guys are lucky. You guys figure it out. But um, let's talk about the team. And as I said before, most teams in the AFC West – what did I just do? I knew that happened. In the AFC West, don't care for – I think it has a lot to do with their fans. But 
let's talk a little bit about this Raider game. Now, this is where I will text the group or go look at what I text the group because where are we at? So, and by the way, we're actually going back and we're, we're trying to make a list of some of the predictions that we made and things of that nature and and create a reel. So I think that should be kind of fun. That would be fun. Let's see what we end, what we end up with. But about a week ago, this was a week ago, I think, exactly. Mm-hmm. We spoke about the – I'll take that back. Wait, say 13? It was. It was a week ago. Sorry, guys. And I'm talking to Matt, and we're sitting here, and the Raiders – just lose to the Washington football team. They lose that game, and I tell Matt, now you're going to Kansas City, and you already lost at home, and the next one, you and me both analyzed, but we looked at differently. And the number was 41-14. to And you went, Traditional sports mind, and I'll let you you answer to, to why you uh, to what your analysis was with the forty one fourteen. I saw forty one to fourteen. I saw a divisional rematch. I saw a game in Kansas City in December, and I thought and I thought of a pissed off Raiders team at the time. Mm-hmm. I thought certainly they have to come into this game jacked up this is their season if they lose this one i'm not gonna sit here and say that their season's over but it is a really uphill battle to get back into the playoff hunt if you're the raiders okay i say all that to say i took a peek at the opening line and i saw nine and a half Mm -hmm. and my initial thought was that's too much i i think the raiders could keep this within a field goal because you look at how their season was going f- at that point. Mm-hmm. We had the same narrative going into Dallas. Yeah. Raiders don't have a chance. Raiders are going to get stomped. They won the game outright by three. We took the same narrative on the Monday night game. Maybe the Raiders keep it somewhat interesting. Not a chance to win. They win in overtime. Yeah. We, start, we said the same thing in week two against the Steelers. They said, oh, well, you know. The Raiders, they're, they're coming off an emotional win of the uh, Ravens. They're, it'll be a letdown spot. They go to Pittsburgh, and they win the game outright. I say all that to say that I was using all that logic to say, okay, if they had a really bad letdown spot against Washington, that means they have to be due for not necessarily a get-right spot, but a spot where they really rise up. I thought maybe that was going to be the Chiefs. And maybe we, we would see a little bit of a, a falter from the Chiefs that maybe they, don't, they wouldn't look quite as sharp as they had in previous weeks and that they were essentially due for a bad week. And I sit here on a Monday with my hand fully raised saying <laughs> I was really wrong. Like, not even in the same ballpark wrong. Like, I, I, I like to think that I've had <laughs> some decently good takes no, no, no. You've been spot on with a lot. This is probably the all-time worst that I've had in a while, at least. If not all-time, maybe one of the worst. I, ooh-wee. I'm, 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 I'm hopefully not going to say all-time simply because it's a regular season game. It's week 14. I don't, right. I don't nah. We, I'm, I'm sure we've bet big and bigger moments. But for everything that you just said, 41-14, uh, to 14, 
I I even picked and I, I mentioned this uh, last show or at least last week. I picked the Raiders to win at KC last year, and the reason why I did that mainly is because week five, and I told a lot of people that they were going to catch them early enough. Now you talk about Kansas City having like a hiccup game and things of that nature, and I told you not that, that not that I think that they won't lose another game the rest of the uh, regular season because they may lose one or two. I don't think the Chiefs are going to look as bad as they did early in the year to end this regular season. Now, oddly enough, they could finish with the best record, get a bye week, and then that that first playoff game look rusty and look as bad as they did early in the year. I don't think we're going to see that anymore the rest of the regular season. I don't. And when I said that, week 14 crept into my head. 41 and 14 crept into my head. And I didn't emphasize it enough on the last show, but I did say it, or at least a week ago. I'm trying to do this on purpose because I don't want you guys going back to the eighth looking for this specific thing. It was on the sixth. But I went ex- I went specifically to the start time. And I said 10 a.m. This is a 1 o'clock game, Matt. The Chiefs still win, but maybe I'm, cl- maybe I'm back to, what, the 9.5-point spread? Maybe I'm back inching closer to that. I told you if the point spread was 16.5, I wouldn't be shocked. And I told you I would take that over. I told you minimum three touchdowns. Ten o'clock stood out to me because the Raiders are traveling. So the Raiders get there. When did they get there? Saturday? Mm-hmm. Early Saturday, I'm guessing. Or at least decently early Saturday. So they get there Saturday. I'm sure they go through their walkthroughs, things of that nature. They're waking up at a time that if they were at home, it's 7 a.m. And I get that these guys are professionals and everything else. Sadly enough, I thought the 41-14, and now we're getting back to it, was the opposite of what you thought. I thought a lot of the Raiders were saying, that was 41-14 at Allegiant, fam. Now we have to come here. I don't want to be here. I think a lot of players didn't want to be there. Except for Yannick Ngakwe. <laughs> now, some people will tell you that they're not nervous when they make these picks at all, and they're just like, whatever, whatever. Your credibility is on the line, so I care a lot when I make these picks. When I saw Yannick Ngakwe take everybody to, to midfield and stand on the Chiefs logo, I smiled, and I wanted to text you guys and say, this game is over. This game is over now. You want to know why I feel like it was over? Did you see the hesitation from half the group? I I saw a brief moment of that clip, but, yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Some of them was like, fam, I don't want to anger them anymore. I saw that and said, they don't believe it. I can't remember who it was, and if somebody is watching the video, please, or if somebody knows what video I'm talking about, please do it. Michigan versus Michigan State. I don't know who from Michigan State went to the to the, went to the, the big gold M at midfield with his cleats on and started scraping up chunks of the M. 
I said, see that. That's what I thought about when I saw Yannick Ngakwe do it. I said, he didn't care who he pissed off. His team didn't care who he pissed off. Matter of fact, I'm trying to piss you off. I think there was about eight Raiders that wanted to piss off the Chiefs that yesterday. The rest of that team was like, hey, come here. We can do that, but at the 35. Right. I want to text you guys immediately and say this game is over. Now, let's fast forward a little bit only because we're going to get to the specifics of the game. But I, I text you guys at 126. And the exact text said, I said on Monday the Raiders would get stomped. And I just realized I said who would get stomped. That's what happens when I'm t- uh, typing fast. I asked if we came in a week later and said the Raiders were outscored 85-26 to 26 this year by Kansas City. Will we be shocked? And I even asked you, and you said no. <laughs> Once again, I said, would you guys be shocked if the Raiders were outscored this season 85-26 to 26 by Kansas City? I'm here to let you guys know a week later that the Raiders have been outscored this season 89-23 to 23 by the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, if we do want to have a little fun with this conversation and say that this was your worst pick, the only reason why I will say it's your worst pick is because this might be my best. This is this is unbelievable. And even while watching the game, as I said before, certain things you have to double, you have to go back and, and double take. And if that wasn't enough, Josh Jacobs fumbling on the first touch of the game, first play of the game. I'm just gonna tell you guys. I'm just gonna tell you about all the times I want to text you. Deal? Mm-hmm. Bet. So I started to text the group a couple of times, but after Yannick Ngakwe did that before in pregame, when Josh Jacobs fumbled, and then when Tyler Johnson dropped the ensuing kickoff. And by the way, that that Josh Jacobs fumble was a scoop and score the other way for Kansas City. So they're up seven nothing about eight seconds into the game. Patrick Mahomes is literally on the sideline, smiling, looking up at the scoreboard, kind of confused, like. I haven't touched the field yet. And they're about to get their second. Okay, cool. Let's just, everybody relax. I seen him in that moment kind of laugh at the other side. Now, when Tyler Johnson dropped the the next kickoff at the 11-yard line, I want to text you guys then. That's about three times already. Things are going, and as I said before, we're not going to get into the specifics. I feel like every week we talk about the Raiders' penalties and third downs, penalties and third downs, penalties on third downs. They happen. So let's just move on. What I do think is interesting is that Kansas City was up 14-0 after the first quarter. The Raiders had run seven more offensive plays. More interesting than that, and I have the exact number. Where is it? There we go. You asked me a couple weeks ago, actually, no, the Washington game, if I knew when the Raiders first scored. Now I'm going to ask you if you remember when the Raiders took their first snap in Kansas City territory. 
This was, if I remember right, I think about halfway through the second quarter. That's about what I said last time. Matt, both of us were wrong. The Raiders didn't touch the other side of the field until 28 seconds left before halftime. So, Matt, here's where I say stuff that people get mad at me for because I believe in omens. That means the Raiders touched the Kansas City logo in pregame and didn't touch it again until nearly halftime. That's what I call an omen. If I'm Yannick Ngakwe, I don't know how many more <laughs> how many more huddles I'm leading in Kansas City. Probably not a whole lot. <laughs> I'm only laughing because, as I said before, I talk about omens. You may have said that the quote of the, the Raiders season, they Raidered it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that literally should become the way to describe when teams do this. They just Raidered it. I don't know what you guys want me to say anymore at this point. Well, what you got? Because I do got some other numbers, but I'm not I'm not in a rush to get to those. It's more of a, I guess, critique, if you will, of a lot of Raiders fans. Okay. Do you know what the narrative's going to be coming out of this game? When you that ask, when you good. let me let me rephrase that. When you ask Raider fans, what what's the consensus going to be? I, at this point, you need to shoot for a wild card. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no clue. They're going to point to number four on the field, and they're going to say, see, we told you. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. So let me get to that stat at least so you can you can, you can can go back to elaborating. Yes, Derek Carr is 0-7 when he does not throw for 300 yards. I made a mistake last episode, guys, and I believe I went back and listened to it, and it sounded gross if that was the case. I think I said 350. I think I said 350. If I said 350, I apologize, guys. That wasn't the case. And even still, if that's the case, Derek Carr only didn't throw for 350 in one of those wins. So it still kind of holds true. But the, the the number is 300. Derek Carr is 0-7 when he doesn't throw for 300 yards. Yesterday, Derek Carr was 33 for 45, 263 yards with a touchdown and an interception. I don't think people are talking about this enough. His brother holds the record for most for taking the most sacks. Uh, I don't think it's in a career uh, for his span of a career. It may be in his rookie season, but Derek Carr was sacked four times yesterday as well. I don't think that gets spoken about enough. We don't have to address how many happen on third downs, and maybe that is a Derek Carr issue, not being able to get out the pocket and get the ball away, even on the third down. Um, but ironically enough to those fans, and you can go ahead and go back to your point, he is 6-0 when he passes for over 300 yards. So th- those fans are probably going to sit there because, I, judging how Raider fans are, they're going to—they're very results oriented. So they're going to sit there and they're going to say, "Fan, we told you about Carr. See, we need a new one." To that, I say, "Did you watch how those turnovers happened?" Because I guarantee you would ha- change your narrative pretty quickly if you saw how the turnovers happened. Josh Jacobs fumbled for a touchdown. I don't think you could put that on Derek Carr. He didn't even have the ball in his hand. <laughs> the other two fumbles, well, I guess fumbles, one of them was a fumble slash interception, the way it bounced. Right. Derek Carr did his job. He got the ball to the receiver. The receiver Hunter had, Renfro has a fumble. 
or had a fumble, I should say. Hunter Renfro got the ball knocked out. And Foster Moreau got Foster, the ball knocked yeah. out. Both after catching passes from Derek Carr. So Derek Carr, by all accounts, did his job as the quarterback, which was get the ball to the receivers. And had they not fumbled, they were probably going to set up decent scoring drives. The reason I bring up the turnovers, mm-hmm. take all three of those turnovers away. This score ends 27-9. to Because the Chiefs went down and scored touchdowns on all three turnovers. That was the key stat that stood out to me at halftime. Mm. Was the Chiefs had 21 points on three turnovers. Or they had had converted. That was their points on turnovers number was 21. And I sat there and I said, if you take those turnovers away, we are talking about a much closer game. And the interesting part is... (laughs) I don't think you could. And that was the that's the that's the thing. And if the Raiders would have won this game, I will be I will admit, I would have been shocked. I don't want to talk percentages in terms of what I gave the Raiders, but as I said before, the the initial fumble, the drop of the of the kick return at the 11, I expected the Raiders to I t- I mentioned too that and I think somebody did mention it, it may have been a sellout for Kansas City, and that's I don't know if it's I don't know if it's true, but anyway, for them to even flirt with the idea or even want that information out there, it was loud, and that's what I expected. It's ten in the morning in Kansas City, that loud. I expected a lot of Raider mistakes. Did I expect five? I don't know if I expected five. Um, do I want to tell you guys some other numbers aside from? The Raiders running the ball 12 times. It's only so much you can do when you're down 35-0 to zero before you can blink. Um, <laughs> like, I, like I said before, at the end of the first quarter, the total plays was always interesting. But then especially when you see a game that's lopsided. We, I haven't told you guys the final score. 48-9 to nine was the final score, in case you did not know. The Kansas City Chiefs beat the Raiders 48-9. to nine. The Raiders ran four more offensive plays than the Chiefs. Didn't really seem to matter. Make that what you will. What happens if Kansas City gets four more plays? They might score 50. <laughs> and aside they might score twice. Aside from the fans being loud, the thing that probably s- screamed the loudest, the Raiders committing penalties on third down. Oh, my gosh. They had so many chances. I'm going to run through my notes. Let me see if I can find some, find some for you guys. They had so many chances. On the de- when they were on when their defense was on the field, mm-hmm. they had gotten the stop they needed to start gaining momentum. I'm running through the first quarter right now, and on the third and eight, which was incomplete, so it would have been a Kansas City punt. Yannick Ngakwe uh, was whistled for offsides. <sighs> you said only on only on third. Third down was really the was the, the one okay, the, so the killer. Yeah. Um, I mean, Max Crosby was also whistled for offsides on a third down again. Is that that's, that's, that's about his third or fourth time this year? Mm-hmm. About a third or fourth time this year. Uh, and I'm just going through the motions. Uh, nah, let's move on. Otherwise, and matter, matter of fact, now that I think about it, Max Crosby was whistled for offsides on the third down twice this game. Yeah, guys, just just running through it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what you guys want me to say. Zay Jones fumbled. Is 
Five turnovers. All I'm going to say is Omen, I, I think that game was lost. And I know most players are going to say it's never lost before the before the game kicks off. And I think that game was lost in the pregame. I truthfully do. Uh, let's move on only because we have no choice but to move on. The Raiders started the game. I believe they were ninth in the postseason race. Now they are 12th in the postseason hunt. I told you guys before when I anticipated the Raiders would actually beat uh, Dallas, I kind of forecasted the rest of their, their games, and I said that they would lose to Washington. I said that they would lose to uh, Kansas City. This was the one right here where I said the Raiders would keep their head just above water. And they would they would beat Cleveland, and we mentioned that the the time hadn't been announced before. It's because it's on a Saturday. It is a 1:30 p.m. start. The interesting thing is the Raiders are six and seven. The Cleveland Browns are seven and six. So big game with playoff implications. Interestingly enough, the Browns are six are seven and six. Yes, but they're five and two at home. Remember that thing I said about Derek Carr shocking people? This is what I meant. This is what I meant. Miles Garrett running through everybody. This is what I meant. Now, this may be the first game that Derek Carr wins and doesn't throw for 300 yards. Mark the time. 50 minutes and and, and 26 seconds. Come back on Wednesday, and I'll give you guys my final answer, but I'm pretty sure the Raiders win this game. Derek Carr doesn't throw for 300 yards. I'm not sure if Miles Garrett gets one. We'll see. And if he does get one, as I said before, I still think the Raiders win. We'll see. Um, As I said before, big playoff implications because the Cleveland Browns will enter that game eighth in the postseason hunt. Let's talk about some Vegas go tonight really quick. There was a win put up yesterday. It was a seven, or excuse me, a six to four win. A couple of stats to give you guys. Robin Leonard, 23 saves, a save percentage of 852. Chandler Stevenson also had four assists. I had to double and triple check that number two and make sure I wasn't going crazy or losing my mind. Remember what I've been saying about Robin Leonard? I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's gonna get really ugly for him soon. Everybody, th- all the Robin Leonard f- fanboys, you're crazy. You're just a you're just a hater. This that. Okay. I know somebody that's in Chicago right now, that's having a much better time than Robin Leonard. And that person may or may not have hit a, a milestone as of recent. We might touch on that a little bit later, but that's neither here nor there. But the point is, is. Do you know how many shutouts Robin Leonard has had this year? No. He hasn't had one. Do you know how many games that Robin Leonard, he's played 20. Of those 20 games, how many games has Robin Leonard given up three or more goals in a game? He's played 20? He's played 20. If it's more than 12, I'm going to be kind of grossed out. In 13 of those 20 games, he's given up three or more goals. This is who the front office put their trust in as the guy to lead the franchise, Robin Leonard. If Vegas didn't score six goals, we are talking about a blowout of all proportions. And 
Robin Leonard better be thanking his lucky stars that he has a high-powered offense to give him support. Because if Vegas was averaging like two goals a game, Vegas's record looks a lot worse. Now, I mean, I'll give credit where credit's due. This was a, obviously a great win against Minnesota. Minnesota leads the Western Conference in points. They sit atop the standings. This, I mean, this is a good confidence-building win. But you can't help but look at that and you go, Robin Leonard didn't even have a .9 save percentage? Yee. Um, to me, I feel like this is still... I'll keep saying it. This is one the front office swung and missed on. I, I, I get the argument about being younger. I get the argument, you know, he's a better investment long term. Say what you want, but the Vegas Golden Knights broke something that wasn't broke, mm. or they tried to fix something that wasn't broke, mm. and mm-hmm. we're seeing the repercussions of that. If you think giving up four goals in a game is going to win you playoff hockey games, you get you better you, you better <laughs> rethink that narrative really quickly because I, I've seen scores of playoff games. You give up four goals in a game, you're going to lose more times than not. Yeah, pretty pretty decisively, uh, as you just mentioned. Let's let's get to that one because you you contacted me about a. a about a that's out there now, and you you just mentioned somebody in Chicago who may or may not have just hit a milestone, and that person is Mark Andre Fleury, and he j- and I, I thought about you as soon as I read it too, and he recently just captured win number five hundred. I could go a couple different places with this next question, but I'm I think I'm gonna stay here. We already said that the trade value on Robin Leonard right now is probably non-existent. If that is the case, my question, I want my question to be the longer that this front office holds on to to Robin Leonard, the worse they look. Right. But then my question should be, what do you do with them? I think you have no choice, but to find a trade partner. Kind of force a trade. I mean, uh... It's one of those, you can't release him because he makes too much money. Right. That was also a bad choice in the front office. We're starting to see a trend here. Anyway, you can't release him because he's too expensive, and you are going to take a massive cap hit if you do. So the only other reasoning would be, well, you have to trade him. But we know how that goes, if, especially if it's a bad deal and it's a player who's under, underperforming to your expectations. You're either going to have me – you're either going to have to give me a star player that you did not want to give up mm-hmm. or you're going to have to give me extreme draft capital. Which the Knights would have to basically match salary or get somebody cheaper because – It would be a giveaway trade. Because the Knights, they can't afford to go – any more than what Robin Leonard is making when it comes to matching salaries. They're already at the salary cap limit as it is. I mean, they just took on Jack Eichel's contract, and th- that's going to be a, a whole fiasco in itself when he comes back to play as far as who gets moved where to make the money work. Right. Uh, but, I mean, you're going to have to get somebody in the neighborhood of, like, a $1.5 million contract, a $1 million contract, 
to save that much cap. And honestly, it, this sounds crazy, but I think it actually makes some decent amount of sense for the Knights. You move Laurent, Laurent Brassois up to the one spot. Okay. You move Logan Tom, Thompson up to number two, and you bring in somebody for the Silver Knights. It's the cheapest route. It's pro- wait, wait, so what do you wait? So wait, wait, wait. In other words, so where where is Robin? I, I heard all of that, but where is Robin? Oh, Robin's traded. That, oh, so you okay? So you're shipping him out of there? Yeah, I, I would trade Robin Leonard. In return, I I would say okay. You find a good a- team that has a good AHL franchise that is or has a a goalie that is playing really well in right. the AHL. You say okay, we'll give you Robin Leonard. He's ready to play right now. Especially if you're having goaltending problems, like exactly. if, if you're a team like just throwing like names out there, spitballing. If your team, if you're a team that's pretty down there, let's let's say you're Arizona, for example. I was just about to say the Coyotes. I'm trying to find a trade partner, and it's like I'm striking out in my head. Like let's say you're Arizona, and you say, "Well, we don't really like our goalie. You can get an upgrade in the goaltender position with Robin Leonard, and it costs you a minor league goalie, maybe a draft pick." In the draft pick doesn't even have to be that high. Not at all. Just enough to eat, balance out rosters and all that. And I think while a lot of casual Vegas fans will think that's a bad trade, a lot of the hockey guys will say, I see what, the, I see what they're doing. It makes sense. And maybe, maybe the Golden Knights were thinking this with Marc-Andre Fleury when they traded him. Yes, that, I think that's what they they just picked the wrong guy. I can't help but imagine Marc Andre Fleury and Lauren Brassois being the two. I mean, given how both have played, we, we talked about it. Marc Andre Fleury got his 500th win. This team would look a lot differently right now, even with their injury woes. And back to a stat I mentioned earlier: Marc Andre Fleury's played 16 games this season. Do you know how many times he's given up three or more goals in a game? One. No, it, it, it's 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 a couple. It's a decent amount, but he had okay. a he, he did have a rough patch the first handful of games. I'm going no more than six. You're close. He had seven. Okay. So seven of the sixteen. Okay. The way that number looks a lot better. Do you know how many shutouts Mark Andre Fleury's got this year? That number jumped in my head when, uh, when you first said it, and I thought you were going to ask me that question. My number's four. Not as much. Damn. He's got two. Okay. Which is two more than what Robin Leonard has. Two more than what we all have. Yeah. And you look at that, and you uh, the narrative has to be, when you're talking about Robin Leonard, everybody thought I was kidding. But you look at and – People that like bet on hockey and they they bet the totals, they'll understand where I'm coming from. This. You look at Rob when Robin Leonard's announced as a starter, and you go, "Oh, time to take the over," because you know you have to pencil in. Chances are Robin Leonard's given up at least two tonight. He might give up three or more. You know the Knights' offense is decent enough to score, and that's the narrative that Robin Leonard has built this season. Is when you see him announced as a starting goalie. As a fan, you're probably excited because you're going to see a lot of offense. Whether you're the, a fan of an opposing team or you're a fan of the Knights, you're like, oh, well. In any case, we're going to see we're going to be we're going to see the lamp lit quite a bit tonight, and that was pretty evident last night against the Wild. I don't know 
like I said, when you go to playoff hockey, these high-scoring 7-4, 6-4 type of games for the Knights, it's not sustainable long-term, and it's not realistic. Well, I, I guess a good up, this would be a good time to update you guys on the record. The team currently is 16-11-0. And, and the reason why I continue to say oh, and I know a lot of people don't, but um, I know a lot do as well, there's only two teams left in major or in major league in that in the national hockey league that don't have an overtime loss both reside in the pacific division you know the other team i'm gonna guess it's the anaheim ducks the oilers makes sense it's edmonton speaking of edmonton they're tied with the Knights right now in third in the third slot in the Pacific Division. They both have 32 points. Interestingly enough, the uh, Calgary Flame are second right now. They have 36 points. The Knights already own a win over them. And then you have the Anaheim Ducks, who are atop of the Pacific Division with 37 points. A game, a road game, I should say, at Boston's next for this Vegas Golden Knight team. 4 p.m. puck drop. Again, that is going to be on Tuesday, so that is tomorrow, December 14th. Um, I do have some basketball to get to before we uh, fully jump into uh, some college sports, some college, some college things to get to. Let's talk, let's talk uh, basketball really briefly, mainly because the Aces, we got a little bit more Aces news. This, the new schedule has dropped. Couple of new things, and I and we've talked about the WNBA and certain things that they can do better. This off season, they've been killing it. Not gonna hold you. I may not like the postseason uh, change. It's a change nonetheless. So at least they're active. So I'll give them that. They added four more games to a season that we have already asked for quite some time to be elongated. So now the teams will play thirty six games, May sixth. May 6th is your tip-off for the WNBA season. That is the earliest tip-off for the uh, league ever. In addition to that, the regular season will end on August 14th, which is the earliest since 2016. Or, excuse me, 2006. Excuse me, 2006. So, for the Las Vegas Aces, your Las Vegas Aces, if you are listening to this, more than likely, they will play the Los Angeles Sparks, the Minnesota Lynx, and the Seattle Storm four times this season. Everyone else, they'll play three times. Their season begins on May 6th. First day, WNBA tip-off. They're going to Phoenix. I'm going to pause here. Because if I had enough time, I would give Salim a call. But I don't think I have enough time to do so. But they're at Phoenix on a fri- on that Friday, 7 p.m. And if you guys were not aware, that is a rematch of the 2021 this year's WNBA semifinal matchup in which the Phoenix Mercury won 3-2. Did you hear the news that came out of Phoenix Mm-mm. a couple of days ago? Mm-mm. Sandy Brondello was relieved of her head coaching duties in Phoenix. And when I seen it, I stared at it for a really long time. And I said, wow. Not only did they expect to win it all, I heard Salim echo louder and louder in the back of my head that the Aces need to get rid of Bill Lambeer. 
And he's been on that for a while. And then you see a team like the Phoenix Mercury let go of their head coach. And you just wonder what some other franchises are thinking. I'm I I'm again I told him in the in the moment I'm against them getting rid of Bill Lambeer. We talked about them some actually shipping somebody out and you and me are, are different on the reasoning. I don't think Liz necessarily should be shipped out, but when you look at at, at uh, I think she fits the team. But when you are this is the bad part. I think she fits the team's personality. I'm not sure how much she fits the team on the court with the um with the way that this team wants to run and pick up the pace now. So, I think you and me may agree on Liz probably being the one that's Probably going to get shipped out first. Um, but as I said before, it's a winning game when it comes to coaches. So I'm, 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 I tell Salim often, I'm pretty sure if Bill Lambeer doesn't, uh, doesn't win at all this year, there could be somebody knocking at his door as well. I have a that's out there now for you. I have an interesting one. Hmm. And this should be a fun one. I guess dads are just the the theme of the show today. Happy birthday again, Dad. Um, okay, here we go. So, you know what? I, I tell people all the time that their podcast as well, sports as well, like the radio show, it's important to have people who know the ins and outs of the profession, the business, the game, whatever the case may be. And then it's always good to have people that, whether they know or not, maybe they just don't care about that and they want to ask about some other stuff. So I say that to say, obviously not the what's your favorite color, but I say this a lot. Ivy Rose, shout out to Ivy Rose. Um, if you know I, you know Ivy, if you um, kind of came through this um, – this 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 journalism department here at UNLV, and me and Ivy were covering uh, USA basketball, and one of the best questions I heard her ask Jason Tatum was, "If you had to pick one album or mixtape ever ever created in history to be the soundtrack of your life," Jason Tatum look at her and go, "Um, that's a really good question." Because if you are dealing with athletes, they listen to music every day. Pick one album for the rest of your life. That describes you. And it was one of those questions that obviously you, you don't, you're not sure which answer you would get. I believe he said country grammar considering he's from St. Louis. It doesn't surprise me. Now, there's a bunch of Dale Curry if he knew that Steph would be as great as he is. Dale's response was, if I told you LeVar Ball is in his answer, would you believe me? No, because that was who I thought of originally, by the way. That's funny. That's hilarious. When you asked the question, I thought, <laughs> that is great. I know somebody, and I know what his answer would be if he was asked about LaMelo <laughs> Ball. I know what that answer is, yes. And this is what's so great about this. Because you know what he would say. Mm-hmm. I think Dale Curry knows what he would say as well. Because he said, I saw LeVar Ball at the game wearing a hat that said, I told you so. Well, my hat would say, I had no idea. And you know what that does to me? It, it gives me one one uh, idea. And or it gives me one thought, I should say. Dale, for as great of a shooter as he was, for as great of a as a as a role player as he was, uh wherever he went, 
Dale never won one. Steph has three. And the reason why I say that number is because we've talked about it before in terms of what we do and and the way that we want to allow the people around us to reap those benefits where possible as well. And I don't know if he's ever done it. I don't know if Dale wouldn't want it. I don't know a bunch of different things. But we've heard stories of of Bill Russell giving Kevin Garnett a ring. Kevin Garnett ultimately gave it back, considering that he won one. But it's a different feeling when I truthfully feel like Steph is the type of person that, while he appreciates his success wildly, of course, if Steph had the opportunity to split his riches with his father and with Seth, I believe Steph would do it. I believe that. Never met Steph, never talked to Steph. Don't know Steph from a can of paint. If Steph, I, I, I believe that if Steph could give Seth the ring, obviously if he didn't have to take any away from himself, I'm sure he wouldn't, but if he could give his dad a ring, if he could give Seth a ring, and he would obviously have one, I think I think Steph would take it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we had anything else on this aside from that was dope that Dale literally said I had I had no idea. Um, and I also saved this random picture in my phone, and you can see this right now. This is a picture from 1989 of the Undertaker and his grandmother. Just amazing. Just ama- just amazing to see because who doesn't love their grandma? But anyway, um, if you guys know who The Undertaker is in wrestling, you know how wild that statement is. <laughs> Maybe I-, I think I want to make that our cover photo on social media. <laughs> Shout out to The Undertaker. All right, um, let's move on. And we got some some college news to get to. We have about 45 minutes left in the show. And I think with the way that this show has been written up, we'll be out of here probably right on time. So, I, I didn't want to start with this only because I do have plans now, considering that we have a set of champions on campus. And if you guys have been following this show for the past couple of weeks, you guys know exactly who I'm talking about. The UNLV volleyball team claimed its first NIVC championship in program history once again that is the national invitational that's the women's national invitational volleyball championship for those of you guys that don't know this doesn't take place in one spot in one sole spot keep that in mind while i give you guys these these numbers and and, and statistics along with it the team uh finished off the the tournament against valparaiso and they beat Valparaiso in straight sets. They beat Valparaiso three to zero. Why is that important, guys? Because UNLV in this NIVC tournament obviously went undefeated on the way to the championship. Matt, remember a lot of those numbers I was giving you in terms of their sets. Mm-hmm. This team went fifteen and three during their run.
I'm going to give you guys the specifics right now, but this includes six straight sets to close. This team didn't lose a set in the semifinals or the championship round. This show is amazing. I, I like the way I like the way this show continues to tie into each other because we're gonna get to this next team in a second. But let's talk about where it started. This team eventually uh, had Mar Mariana Hayden, as always. It, she's she's this team moves as she moves, and obviously she has a, an amazing support group around her. However, Mo was named tournament MVP and the interesting part was oh, okay cool here we go so Shelby Caplanche I really hope I didn't just butcher that name I apologize if I did Jordan Freeman and of course Mo Hayden also earned all tournament spots now I want to get into the specifics in Arizona Tucson Arizona to be specific the women's volleyball team beat New Mexico State in straight sets, 3-0. We'll get to New Mexico State to actually end the show, believe it or not. Matt, take a wild stab in the dark. Why am I telling you about New Mexico State? You know why. I don't want to answer that question. Bet, as long as you know why. <laughs> it's great. I love <laughs> this show. I love this show. Oh, man. And then the, <laughs> and then the women's volleyball team. Why are you laughing? And then the women's volleyball team in Tucson, Arizona, had to face, as I said before, the host school of the first two rounds, and that's Arizona. I'm here to let you guys know that Arizona put up the toughest fight for this UNLV team. This UNLV team jumped out to a two-set lead, 2-0, and then Arizona took the next two. And then finally, Vegas took the final set, winning three to two, and moving on to the next round. The next round took place in El Paso. Third round matchup, they played Arkansas, and Arkansas went down in straight sets. So now we're three rounds through the NIVC at this point, and the ladies from UNLV are nine and two through the first two rounds, or through the first three rounds, excuse me. So, I, I was actually wrong about when I said they didn't lose a set in the finals, and I'll let you guys know right now. In the semifinals, I should say. Because now you're playing another host school. You're playing El Paso. So, this is your second host school. You're playing El Paso, and El Paso takes the first set. This is the first time the entire tournament that the ladies have trailed. First time. How do they respond? Three straight sets <laughs> to move on to the championship round. And, of course, I already told you guys they took care of Valparaiso in straight sets. So that initial loss in the semifinals, in that initial set loss in the semifinals against El Paso, the team railed off six straight sets following that. So 9-1 and one through the back end, through the last three rounds of the, of the NIVC, I don't know what you guys want me to, want me to tell you guys. I, I'm, you got it, <laughs> you guys got it. But I will say this: 
I like to dive into numbers, obviously. This team went 28-9 this season, 12-6 in the Mountain West, 10-4 at home, 10-5 away, 8-0 on neutral sites. That's the recipe to be a champion. Shout-out to Don Sullivan. Shout-out to the entire coaching staff. Shout-out to the UNLV volleyball team. Um, I thought I had something else to get to with that. Hmm. Oh, the four-year run that these women have been on. 2017, they made the semifinals of this particular tournament, NIVC, and they lose to Iowa State. And if anybody knows anything about Iowa State, current head coach Don Sullivan, she was associate head coach for Iowa State. That's her first season. Her first season concludes with a loss to her former school. Season after, this team loses in the second round. Of and let me make sure I have this back. Uh, it loses in the second round of the NIVC. Oh yeah, so 2019 they lose, lose in the second round of the NIVC, and then last year this team makes the NCAA tournament after going 13 and one. This team makes the championship game of the Mountain West tournament this year. Falling short, getting an invite to the NIVC, missing out on the NCAA tournament by this much, only to finally claim the NIVC championship for the first time in school history. Um, I'll, I'll talk with with Don Sullivan and some of the some of the ladies on the team and see if we can get together. A, not even a radio show, but I think I want to get together a full podcast and just talk about the full four years and get together some stuff. If anybody else does it, you guys are corny because I haven't heard you guys talk about them. Um, basketball? Let's do it. Let's talk, let's talk some basketball. Let's talk some basketball. Let's talk about some other amazing ladies. Let's talk about some ladies led by head coach Lindy LaRock. Finished off their road trip. Unfortunately, they finished off their road trip with the loss. They will. Eh, according to head coach Lindy LaRock, we spoke after the game, and we're going to get to some specifics right now. But I said technically, and I did the quotations, I said technically a neutral site game. And Lindy's eyes got big and said, not really. <laughs> I said, no, absolutely. Absolutely. The UNLV Lady Rebels. The UNLV Lady Rebels fell short against Texas Tech, 68-61. to They end the road trip 2-1. and one. And now let's refer to some of these notes. Where am I at with it? All right, so cool. So, I, after the game, I talked to head coach Lindy LaRock, and uh, I'm going to take you guys kind of the, the order that I spoke to her about. First thing I mentioned was finals are over, right? A, a week a week ago, the team had a, uh, the team had their last game, and I asked her how she felt the team responded, and she said that she – it felt like the game was so long ago. The, the last game was so long ago, and she was saying that ultimately she felt like the team responded well. The team had – some uh some moments where they had some lows and she ended up getting into specifics later on highlighting uh the size and the length of Texas Tech saying that uh ultimately you can't imitate that in practice it's only so much we can do in practice in terms of their size and their length so she said she felt like that kind of jump started the the way that uh, things kind of went for the team the team was down early eight to two and hopped into a press immediately we talked about the team being up I believe by 16 and hopping into a, into a press last game head coach Lady LaRock continues to 
to show that she's going to jump into her press. It seems almost as if about five, six minutes into the game, she's probably going to hop into her press regardless. Interestingly enough, during that time, UNLV was already uh, scoreless for about two and a half minutes. That happened two times, I believe, in the first half. Uh, Texas Tech ended the first quarter with eight made field goals. They had seven assists on those eight made field goals. Once again, guys, if you guys know anything about basketball, that's that's tremendous ball movement. The defense isn't giving you much resistance in that type of uh, moment. And then you have Texas Tech with an 11-point lead heading into the second quarter. That lead eventually gets to 13. UNLV cuts it to as little as three, still jumps back up to 12 by the end of the half. Anyway, UNLV goes into halftime down 10, 37-27 on the road against Texas Tech. Uh, technically, it's a, neutral, it's a neutral site game. You're 3-1 and one on the road. You're 3-1 and one at home, so you feel good about your chances wherever you go. And then what if I told you that UNLV was down 10, and even at the point where they cut it to three, Desiree Young hadn't scored a field goal from the field yet. Hmm. Desi did have two fouls in the first half. And that while that's been a kind of a trend for uh for a young player, this was what I found most interesting about Desi. Desi drew two offensive fouls, both charges, playing with those two fouls. So those offensive fouls that she drew helped cut the lead from 13 back to three. Ultimately, it did get back up to 12. But she scored her first field goal in the third quarter, and she hit a switch in the third quarter. I don't know exactly what happened, but she had one moment. One moment where she missed the layup and she had a fast break and she missed the layup. And I saw her slump her shoulders. When she slumped her shoulders, I actually even seen her toss her head back. In that moment, I said, Desi has to get to the next play. She's the last one down the floor and she's the she's the energy. Sorry, but you can't be last. Joe Kim Noah couldn't be last down the floor. Asia can't be last down the floor. Like, just certain when you know what you are to the defense, you can't be behind the play. She gets back to the play. I don't remember if Texas Tech scored at that particular time, but I do. I did mention to Lindy, I mentioned the next time she comes back down the floor, the, offense, uh, the, uh, the offensive side, she gets the ball, she makes a move, she gets a clear path to the basket. She misses another one. So I asked Lindy in that moment, of course, her being a young player, did she feel like that first layup, Desi fully never let it go. I asked her if she felt like Desi never let it go and it bled into the next play. Uh, she said possibly. And it, it wasn't the smoothest night for Desi as she hit the deck a couple of times dealing with the size and the length of Texas Tech. However, she hit a layup in the fourth quarter that cut the game to two. Cut the deficit to two, which is as close as UNLV would get in the second half. And she had a couple of moments where, of course, we've seen it. We've seen Desi do it here, and there's nothing wrong with it. I heard obviously the announcers say some some look at me stuff, and that's fine. We understand that there's some that they're they're hometown announcers. We understand that there's nothing wrong with doing anything in sports and flexing your muscles. It's not not a thing wrong with it. However, Desi did that a couple of times, obviously signifying I can finish through the contact. When she made that layup to cut the deficit to two. She hit the deck again, and I believe she said something. 
And I think this is what Lindy LaRock had her biggest issue with. The ref that she's right in front of doesn't tear up. As she's getting off the floor, off the hardwood, from the paint, essentially, and if it's not the paint, she's slid a little bit further than the, uh, down the baseline. As she's getting up, you have your referee on the baseline. Doesn't tear up. I believe the referee at half court tees her up. At the time, Desiree Young had four fouls. The technical foul gave her her fifth, and she was disqualified. Lindy LaRock was open after the game saying that Desi was in tears after the game, and she said she was upset. And, and the, I think what was most interesting was that Lindy LaRock opened it up by saying whether or not I agree with the call, the call was made. And as a person who watched the game, I watched Lindy tell the ref. She was she was animated at first, and then when the ref came over to explain whatever he explained to her, Lindy got, like, super close and was looking at him and said, okay, but that's not your call. There's a ref right in front of her. If he would have did it, cool. He's the closest one, and he didn't tear up. You're behind the play. How did you tear up? And whatever she's saying, she's saying it to him because it's his foul call. So what if he did miss the foul call and that's why he let her say that? So I can see where a coach's frustration comes from. However, this is this is where uh, the, the my question actually began. I told Lindy LaRock, remember when we talked about Grambling State? And I told Lindy that as a reporter, you always know when you ask a question that you shouldn't have asked. You always know when you uh, should have reworded a question. And I told Lindy, I said, do you remember that Grambling State Tech question? And she said, yeah. And I said, the reason why I'm asking that is because I said that the team was up six when that tech was called. The team was up 10 on the back end of that, those free throws, the play, whatever. On the back end of that, they were, they were up 10. I told Lindy when I asked the question, I don't think I got I, – I properly formed it, but I told Lindy, with your team being such a young group, how much of that situation, even though it benefited them this time, how much of that becomes a teaching, a teachable moment to not let that happen to them? I told her that's the way I feel like I should have asked it. And she absolutely said it. She said, you're right. She said, you try to learn from other people's mistakes as much as possible. And I think one of the best quotes that she gave me that's in the story on TalkThatTalkRadio.com. She said, but I think sometimes you have to feel the salt in the wounds to make you want to never do it again. Do we have a cooler coach on campus? I mean, I don't think we do. And I, I, I tip my cap to Lindy LaRock in that situation. Because if I was head coach of that. I'm hot. I'm, I'm, I'm but she's a min- sophomore, so it's like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you deal with it? The the minimum I'm walking away from is is a technical. That's where we're starting this at, and I might get thrown out of the game, very possible, because for those that watch basketball, for those that either are an assistant coach, a head coach, you can all attest to this. When an official makes a call that is not their call, i.e., the one we just described. That is probably the most infuriating thing 
to watch because I mean, it, it's not hard to understand. That official has half the view that the baseline <laughs> official has. If that situation happens, I might still be telling the official that he's wrong. He or she is wrong in that situation because it, 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 and maybe some of it has to do with situation. As the officials, you have to understand what the situation also is. Mm-hmm. You have to understand a foul call there disqualifies Desiree Young for the remainder of the game. I'll be honest. When he got to the scorer's table and he said it, and I think they let him know that she was disqualified, I think in that moment you think he re- – I think he realized, like, I wouldn't have done it there. I mean, I, I, get, where, I get it's human error – and it, it mistakes happen, but at the end of the day, this is a Division One basketball official. You have to be more aware than that. And I guarantee, you know, whether it's you calling the majority of the fouls, you know, somebody else on your crew calling the majority of the fouls on Desiree Young, somebody's got to say, hey, she's got four. And... I've seen it uh, uh, more so at the middle and high school levels here. The officials will know mm-hmm. who is in foul trouble. And they will be, if it's not obvious, they're probably going to let it go, as I think a good official should. Because let the players decide the game. At that point, I don't know. I mean, that is such a horrible way to get disqualified, to pick up your fifth on a tech. And, you know, my initial thought on this mm-hmm. was, man, T and, T and I were right about this one again. Yeah. Because we said one week ago today, when we were previewing this game, we both looked at each other and we said, I don't like the spot. Not a week later, not during finals week. Yeah, it was just, it was too many outside factors that led to this team. What I will say is it seems surprised me in terms of keeping it close because when the game was double digits multiple times, I, I'll be honest, I thought I thought the game was going to be a blowout eventually, and the team kept scratching back. Yeah, and I mean, when we, when we talk about Lindy LaRock, I think it's been well documented. You can call it what you want. I since she's been on campus, I have slowly become a Lindy LaRock fan. I am I, I I mean just it's the little things that she does. Cause I remember sitting there during their um exhibition game this year mm-hmm. against uh I think it was Cal State LA. Yeah. And I remember um it was an exhibition, so they didn't have really like the whole like media thing set up. So they just said, you know what, for this game, just sit at the scores table, it's fine, nobody's sitting here. Right. Okay, fine, cool. Lindy LaRock literally made it a point to go first off over to the pe- the pep band, mm-hmm. greet them, you know, thank you for coming out. She worked her way all the way down the media on the scores table and gave everybody, you know, hey, good game or, you know, to have a good game, you know, fist bump. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a head coach do that before. And to me, when I saw that and, you know, experienced that, I thought this is somebody that cares about attention to detail. This is somebody that cares about being a good person before anything that happens on the court. And I say that because what did she tell you after 
What did she tell you last Sunday? Not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, after the game. Ironically enough, she said it again in this game. I was going to ask you, did you read the story already? I didn't. I didn't you get didn't read the story. It. Okay, bet. Because you're you're throwing this 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 right by the rim. So thank you. What she said last week was, I asked her how does with, with finals coming up, and obviously it's a it's a big game coming up on the road against a Power Five uh, team, Big Twelve team, possibly a tournament team. I said, how do you gear that uh, your basketball team up for that game with finals coming up? And her answer was essentially, a lot of my preparation now for the next week has nothing to do with basketball. It's making sure that they pass their finals. It's making sure that they're not stressing heading into Sunday. We'll get to basketball when we get to basketball. She made it a point to mention we're obviously not going to not practice for four days, but we're going to practice, but the emphasis will be on their grades, and that's what it needs to be. And I found it interesting that you said that because I thought she was reading my story and trying to throw me the alley-oop for a reason, but freshman guard Kennedy Winfrey, do you know where she's from? She from Las Vegas. She's from Canyon, Texas. Hmm. Homecoming game, which is where the game took place. Kennedy Winfrey was inserted into the starting lineup. That makes sense, by the way. Judging off what I saw from their social media, that makes sense now. Makes a lot of sense. Very rarely do you hear something like this. Kennedy Winfrey is a freshman guard. She went to Canyon High School in Canyon, Texas. She won two district championships for Canyon High School. Obviously, she's here now at UNLV. Lindy LaRock said, and I just and this is the the probably again one of the best quotes that she's given me this season already, given us since we're both covering it. She said, no doubt. We played this game today because of Kennedy Winfrey. I said, huh? She said they wanted to give her this dream come true opportunity of coming back and playing in front of her family and friends. She said, and I told Coach, I said, you're trying to make me cry. I know what you're doing. And she said that Kennedy didn't tell her parents that she was starting. So she said she had a whole family section. And she said, of course, when her name was announced in a starting lineup, she said everybody broke out in tears. And she said that it was just a moment that she said as a coach, she said that she has this magic wand and she has the ability to make certain things happen. And she said that she thought what was kind of most important about the trip was they already knew her family, obviously, from recruiting her. But as she said before, she said being able to see Kennedy's childhood home and being able to see her childhood room where she grew up, she said the entire team went. The entire team had dinner that night at the Winfrey's. That's why when you mention Kennedy Winfrey is from that Kennedy part of Texas, Texas, absolutely, a dot just got connected in my head, and it all made sense because I saw that on Saturday, and I thought, huh, okay, maybe they just have a connection there. This entire story is a that's out there now. Now the the puzzle's complete. Now it all makes sense. So I, at this point, as I said before, uh, I've been very, very open about Yvonne Wade 
probably being my favorite coach on on campus and Yvonne Wade just recently retired happy retirement coach um and I told you guys just because of the four-year run I even put it on her on her social media the four-year run with the the volleyball team to just I've kind of been able to be around and watch me and Don Sullivan I, I that's somebody that I hold really really high in my regard and you you just you just touched on it right now man I don't know too many people on this I'm about, I'm about to go further and say just in my years of doing this I mentioned coach Mazzotta last year or last week about not cutting players Lindy's Lindy's reaching that level where that's that's not one of the best coaches I've ever encountered that may be one of the best humans I've ever encountered that magic wand comment almost made me cry because as she said before these are the moments that these women are going to cherish they may forget the game She's not going to forget that experience. What you got? You know, it's funny. What have I been, it, you know this, so it's not, I'm not like, you know, trying to sit up here and like. Don't tell him. No, I'm just one. Du- double take it. What have, I been, what have I been saying? We could even go back to last year, but more so even since the start of the season when it comes to Lindy LaRock. And I'm not even talking anything about coaching. What have you said about her? Yes. There's one comment in particular I've told probably half a dozen to a dozen people this exact comment. I don't know. I've said Lindy LaRock is one of the nicest people you will meet on the UNLV oh, campus. No, sure. You have said that. Not even a doubt in my mind about it. And it's yeah. through my own experiences. It's through people that have been close with the team that have all – told me stories about different things she does for the players, you know, off the court and all that. Um, and just, you take it all into account, this is a really good human being to have on the UNLV campus, regardless of the coaching record, which, by the way, is amazing. But regardless... <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty good. I mean, it's it's a winning record, so that's more than Marcus Royal and Kevin Kruger can say. But let's keep it moving past that real fast. Well, Kevin Kruger has a winning record now. <laughs> let's keep it moving. Um... <laughs> Outside of the record and the, the, the really good work I think she's done on the court the past two we- two years, Lindy LaRock has done has been the type of person that I never saw at a TJ Altsberger. I never saw at a M- Marvin Menzies. And you may have to go back to Lon Kruger when you're talking about basketball to, f- to find that genuinely nice person. Maybe you make somewhat of an argument for Dave Rice. Dave Rice wasn't a terrible person. Um, But it's been a while since we saw somebody this genuine and this nice when it comes to UNLV basketball, which I thought was hard to top given that you had – KO is amazing. When you had KO. That's the other thing. So if if you told me, okay, you know, pick your – you know, four pe- four or five people that you genuinely can remember that have coached UNLV basketball, men or women, that, you know, you have thought, you know, that's a pretty good person. Not even just For taking sure. their account, their coaching ability into into account. I'd probably tell you Lon. I'd probably tell you Dave. And this is in no order. I'd probably say KO. And I'd probably say Lindy LaRock. Yeah. And Never met Dave personally. I met Dave <laughs> once. Very nice guy. Okay. I met him once or twice. Very nice. Lon, 
And Lon's, I think, even nicer now he is. than he was he when, than he was coaching. <laughs> I interviewed Lon when he was at Oklahoma, and he is a hundred percent. Not that he was mean then, but you could just tell he was coach Lon then. Well, you could tell now he's enjoying retirement. I mean, 100%. I see I see him at the TNM, or I, I even saw him at Mandalay Bay the the other day, just stopping, taking pictures with fans, like. Doesn't even have a complaint in the world. He was perfectly fine with doing Lon it. Lon is the man. <laughs> I'll be honest. And, and that's why, like I said before, just I haven't done my coach's spotlight with them yet. Uh, I, I did bring it up to Kevin Kruger, and he did say we can do the coach's spotlight. I told him what it was. Awesome. I told Lon what it was. He's, he's excited, too. I think for the first time ever, because normally when I do that, me and coach, we go somewhere secluded. I don't care if it's a dinner. I don't care if it's a lunch. I don't care – if we go to somebody's house, I don't care if we're in an office. One-on-one, though. That's the only rule. Got to be one-on-one. It's the only rule. I think I may break my rule. Because I'm going to do probably half. I'm going to say 70% of the interview. And then I'm going to bring his dad in. And then I have to do that interview together. That's going to be gold. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I'm, I'm, and I've I haven't done it before. I've never like recorded, like audio, of course, but like visually recorded a coach's spotlight interview, and I think that might be the first one. As a Las Vegas kid, you can't. I, I can't tell you how excited I am for that story to come out. I, I, I'm gonna have a ball with that, and I'll tell you that much. Um, speaking of that, Kevin Kruger and his team, back-to-back games on the strip. Running Rebels on the Strip, I absolutely love this promotion. I I am one of those people that will tell you guys what I enjoy about certain um, entities and even sports leagues. Uh, I enjoy when the Rebels are when they take their show to the Strip, the Running Rebels on the Strip. The interesting part was I texted you guys during both of these games, and while they were both wins for UNLV over Seattle and over Hartford, both of them big wins, um, I texted you guys right after, and I told you guys it could be the building. It could be just who they were playing. But I told you guys, it's hard to take away something from the from the games. And the thing was, we, we talked about it, and we, we tried to pinpoint why I felt that way. And the interesting part was, the only good part I think I had, or a good takeaway I had was, hopefully this click starts, this uh yeah, hopefully this click starts the um, offense. That was my first answer. If nothing else, you'll get the offense kind of jump-started. While that could be the case, we don't know because there's only two more non-conference games before uh, the Mountain West play. And let me actually go back to the women's for really uh, for one second because the women are now 6-3. and three. That loss did end, a, uh, did end a three-game win streak. They are actually returning home. They have a game on Saturday, another long layoff. They have a game on Saturday, 2 p.m. start this time against Pacific, and then they have Hawaii before Mountain West Conference play starts for them. But for the men's team, uh, they they beat Seattle. They beat Hartford. They started the season – or they started this uh, week, rather, 4-5. and five. Now they're 6-5. and five. Back-to-back wins, I mean, you have certain things you could take away from it. Best part, obviously, in this last game, in this Hartford game – you did beat a team that was one and seven coming in, so you take from that what you will. Uh, Bryce had thirty three points. Donovan Williams had thirty two. Both of them combined for sixty five. So obviously, I just gave you guys the numbers, but uh, the night before or the game before when we went Seattle, Bryce along with Mike Nuga combined combined for thirty nine points. 
And Mike sat out this game due to injury along with uh, Victor Uakor. And I'm going to ask him flat out. I haven't talked to Victor yet. I'm going to ask Victor myself. Tell me how to pronounce it, and then I'm going to do it. Um, So as I said before, it helps that this team, obviously, I think a couple of takeaways. I'm trying to take away from something. I think, obviously, hopefully it it jumpstarts the offense. Donovan Williams had a new career high. Uh, Bryce had a new season high. That just kind of shows you guys what kind of a scorer Bryce is. His career high is 35 points. And then Mike Nuga against Seattle had a, had a season high as well. So you have your your some of your bigger uh, key contributors, rather, on your team uh, finding their rhythm at a time like this. But as I said before, it's kind of hard to tell what it's actually going to translate into. In addition to that, like I said, I think the one thing that I will say is that you got two wins on technically a neutral site. So I think considering what happened at the Roman main event, I think this this is obviously a good um, feather in the cap for this team. Uh, they do still or they do have three straight home games on the horizon that begins on Wednesday at 7 p.m. against Omaha. And then they have a game against San Diego after because Mountain West play begins against San Diego State. I like the fact that UNLV, I think this might have been TJ when he was here to schedule San Diego right before playing San Diego State. And the interesting part is about TJ Yasselberger too. Like I said before, especially if you watch that situation transpire, you knew TJ had one foot out the door. I just wonder how you schedule when you like when in your mind you're playing the the Magic Johnson gift the I'm not going to be here. Like, I'm wondering how you're scheduling four years down the line when you know that you're not going to be here. Because it actually might have shook out pretty decently for Kevin Kruger and company. Um, speaking of former coaches, you ready for me to tie that New Mexico State thing together? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to do a where are they now, right now. Let's talk about Tony Sanchez. Let's talk about Tony Sanchez. What has Tony Sanchez been doing to being relieved of his duties at UNLV? Well, he wasn't doing anything football-related until, at least publicly, until this year when he was an offensive analyst for TCU. Go Frogs. The interesting part is, you may look at TCU football and say, well, who the hell cares about TCU football? Here's the interesting part. I wrote this down because I, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna talk about it at all. At least this this number I'm about to give you guys. I looked at their record and I said, ah, okay, well, they went five and seven. Then I thought about it. I said, you know what program would kill for a five and seven record right now? More importantly than that, I started looking into the numbers. That TCU team at 5-7 and seven averaged 28.7 points per game. What would happen if last year's TCU play, team played last year's UNLV team? Don't answer it. Never mind. You want to answer it? No, because I know what happens. Okay, let's move on. Chuck goes bonkers. That's what happens. Um, now what is Tony Sanchez doing, right? He just recently got hired as the wide receiver coach at New Mexico State. That's the tie-in, guys. Wait, 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 wait. 
I got two more things that are included as tie-ins for this. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. What was Tony Sanchez's first coaching job? In college? Period. Maybe I'll help you out. It was in 96, so. It was around his college days. Was it over at Bishop Gorman? It was not. He was an undergraduate assistant at New Mexico State. You want to know what else he did at New Mexico State? What's that? He played wide receiver from 1994 to 1995. Just to keep in concert with our homecoming verbiage, that made me smile. Congratulations to Tony Sanchez for going back to, to his old stomping grounds, to his alma mater, to be a wide receiver in his day and now to come back and – be a wide receiver coach at that same spot, considering being a head coach at UNLV already under his belt. I, I'm, I'm proud of him. I'm happy for him. And a lot of people said that he would go right back to Bishop Gorman. I was even considering if he went back to Bishop Gorman, maybe not being a head coach, but being in some sort of uh, football advisory role, just to kind of, you know, be with his brother and, and add to that legacy that they already built out here. And um, that's why I think I'm giving him kudos. Shout out to Tony Sanchez for being – the Tony Sanchez, we all kind of learned that he was <laughs> in terms of Tony Sanchez is going to do a lot of things that you don't expect. And that's what makes Tony Sanchez him. I'm excited to see what New Mexico State does this season. My dad's tip in before we get out of here. And then you guys have to worry about the L.A. Rams and the Arizona Cardinals. Once again, guys, the L.A. Rams are 8-4. and four, The Arizona Cardinals are 10-2. and two. Just in case you guys care, the Packers are 10-3. and three. Um, You want to tell them what the Steelers are? No. All right, let's move on. Uh, my dad's tip in. He said it's just a quick thought that he had today after reading that Jalen Ramsey would not be suiting up tonight in an important NFC battle for the number one seed because of COVID protocol. Pause. Dad, I just want to tell you this right now, mainly because uh, we're celebrating your birthday still the rest of the month, rest of the year. That's what we rock. I'm going to say this now and I'm going to get out the way because I made you sound absolutely crazy when you said it. My dad said, and my dad needs to probably, we need to add him to the reel too. My dad said when the Brooklyn Nets traded for uh, James Harden that it didn't matter to him because Kyrie Irving was the X factor because he wasn't sure if Kyrie would be there when you needed him. And when he said that, I laughed and I said, Dad, when has Kyrie not been there in a game where you needed him? My bad, Dad. Um... Now let's go back to the tip-in. With the win tonight, the Rams can knock the red-hot Cardinals down a peg and get one game closer to them in a, in a battle for NFC supremacy. But losing Ramsey to a highly explosive offense like the Cardinals is definitely a big deal and sure to be exploited by Kyler Murray and company. This just made me wonder, what happens in the playoffs? Today, 37 NFL players tested positive for COVID. This number has the NFLPA considering changes to the COVID protocols in the last four weeks of the season. I believe that the rules say that if a vaccinated player tests positive, he has to show two negative tests separated by 24 hours. What happens if Tom Brady tests positive on the Friday before the Super Bowl? Will he play? Won't he play? Hmm. I'll be honest with you, Dad. I think they'll hold the Super Bowl a whole week. <laughs> I don't know, fam. I don't know. I don't – if Aaron Rodgers – 
Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady, if Dak Prescott even. I don't think Kyler Murray, I don't think they're gonna let Jordan Love start a Super Bowl. Like if they can prevent it, I think they're they're not going to. If you not to sound like that, but like you just said before, my dad just said these 37 positive COVID tests today. If that happens between two teams, you may get a situation where you have a Blaine Gabbert versus, you know what I mean? And that might not be ideal for the NFL. So I'm, I'm, in terms of what my dad asked, I guess I'll say I'll meet you somewhat in the middle and say that I think within the next four weeks that the NFLPA will have this figured out with the league. I think the NFL doesn't want to lose games, and I think the NFLPA obviously wants to be protected if something was to happen. Uh, I'm sure game checks are going to be decided or discussed. I think a lot of things are going to be discussed. But more than anything, me and Matt are going to go discuss this game, and we're going to get out of here so you guys can go do the same. Uh, Was that a bar? Hmm? That was a bar. That was a bar, and I didn't even realize it was a bar. I'm over here rapping without knowing it. Um, You got anything else? We'll see y'all on Wednesday. Until next time, guys. Keep on talking.